Can grace ever no longer be grace? Can grace not be grace? That's the question our passage this morning will answer. Can grace no longer be grace? Romans chapter 1, uh, sorry, Romans chapter 11, verse 1 says this, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Today we're going to look at verse 5 and 6 specifically and answer this question, can grace no longer be grace? Because that's the way the end of verse 6 ends. Grace would no longer be grace. How is that even possible? In order to get there, we have to understand verse 5 and 6 well. He begins verse 5 by saying, so too at the present time. Or in, in another way of saying it is, in the same way as the past, in the same way at the present, in the same way God will always work, in the same way there is this remnant then in Elijah's day that, that God has kept safe. He, he's kept them from judgment. Was it as though maybe God kept the doors open to his sanctuary and he was just waiting there with open arms for these people. Uh, these people in, in Elijah's day, that God just waited over there and said, if they would just maybe walk past Baal, if they would just do it, if they would just not go with the flow, if they would just reject their own nature, which wants what everybody else wants, if they would just do that, I'm over here. And God's just waiting for them to come in to the sanctuary with open arms. That if they would just refuse to worship Baal, walk into his place, then he would respond in generosity. Then he would be gracious to them. No, that's not it. And Paul is going to help us understand that that's not it. That it's not God was sitting over here waiting for this remnant of 7,000 to come to him past the false god Baal, like everyone else was doing. He wasn't just waiting for them to come. And they were the remnant. And because they were the remnant, they walked by Baal. That's not the way it works. And Paul's going to help us understand that's not the way it works. How is it that God kept for himself these people, these 7,000 people? This was not simply a response or a reaction of God. He didn't say, oh, I see what they've done. Let me respond now. It was the plan and the purpose of God all along. Are we to say that it is God's plan to just keep the doors open to any poor beggar who would walk by or get sick of worshiping false gods then or now? That once a person finally comes to themselves, then and only then they would be part of that remnant that God's talking about. Then God would forgive them and guarantee them eternal life. What does it mean that God kept for himself these people? How did he keep for himself these people if it was their plan and their purpose to walk by Baal and come to him. How did he keep them? Was it once they had arrived at his doorstep 
Then he secured their safety and safe passage then to eternal kingdom. Was that when? The verse says, so too at the present time there is a remnant. So in the same way, Paul's saying now, even now there are, there are Jews, specifically speaking of Jews, who are safe eternally. There are Jews who are saved eternally. How? Was it because they rejected what all their other kinsmen, all their brothers and sisters were doing? They were rejecting Jesus and they said, no, today I'm not going to be like you. I'm going to choose God. Was that how it happened? Well, no, he says, so too at the present time. So in the same way, just like in Elijah's day as it is then as it is now, he says, in the same way, there's this remnant. And they're chosen by grace. They're chosen. These 7,000 were marked out. They were selected. because, And we know it is a selection because earlier in this chapter, there is the rejection is the opposite. So there's a rejection and a selection. The question is, has God rejected his people? His reply is no. He selected some people. And so that's how we know that this chosen, this election, it's the same word as election in verse 7. So he has chosen, he's distinguished these people as different from the rest. These people belong to God. He has chosen them to belong to him. Well, how did he do it? Was it a response? No, it was by grace. But was his grace simply a response? Was he just gracious to them when they finally came? Was he then gracious? What's the reason that part of these people are a safe remnant? It's God's grace from start to finish. It's not God's grace at a point. It's God's grace to begin with and God's grace to end. That's his extending love to those who completely do not deserve his grace. They're completely undeserving. Completely. That word's really important. That we completely, they completely, completely did not deserve it. How completely? Completely. Do you get it? You laugh. And it's funny. But it's not because I don't think we get it at times. We, we don't get the idea that it's completely undeserving. It's not as though, well, they had walked by Baal. And now they've come to God's door. So they've done a little something to deserve it, right? No, they're completely undeserving. That's how it's still grace. Meaning they did, listen, they did nothing to enter into his eternal love in this way. They did nothing in order to gain salvation. They did nothing. We kind of go, ooh. Are you sure? Are you sure nothing? Well, how'd they come in? Didn't they seek God? Didn't they confess? Didn't they have faith? Didn't they come to him? Can you really mean nothing? That they did nothing to contribute to their salvation? We can say that, and we must say that. Because this verse tells us, if it's by grace, then it's no longer on the basis of works. Because if it's on the basis of even a glimpse of works... It's no longer on grace. It's no longer grace. Grace is no longer grace if part of the calculation is something man did. It's Jesus plus nothing 
equals everything. If you have Jesus plus something, you don't have grace anymore. You don't have gospel anymore. You have mankind being part of this equation, and mankind fails. So you're in trouble, and it's no longer grace. It says, so too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, then it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Uh, the NLT, a translation I normally do not read, um, you may read it, it's a good devotional translation, but it was originally written for children to make it readable. It, but it really helps actually kind of capture this verse and go, what does this mean? Here's how the NLT puts verse 6. It says, And since it is through God's kindness, then it is not on their good works. For in that case, God's grace would not really be what it is, free and undeserving. It's true. If it was based on anything other than God, it's not free and undeserving. It's, it's a wage to be paid, and it's deserved. Uh, John Gill, a, a great uh, Baptist from history days gone by, he said, that if you try to make grace anything other than God alone, he says, then it will lose its nature, and it ought to change its name. It should no longer be called or reckoned grace. If you try to add anything to grace, then it's not, not grace anymore, and it should have a name, a name change. In Romans chapter 4, we also get this idea. It says, Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Now to the one who works... His wages are counted not as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, then his faith is counted as righteousness. So if you work, then it's a wage, not a gift. If, if you contribute, then it's a wage. It's not a gift. It's not grace. It's you're, you're owed something. So you can't add any work. Or grace is nullified. And Paul says this in other places. He said it in Galatians. He's talking about like if he wants to add his righteousness to the law. Then he says, no, that's not what I do. I reject that. Everything that I lived for. And Paul, remember, this guy who's writing this, lived as the perfect Jew. He followed the law to the T. And so if anyone could boast in the law, it was Paul. But he says, no. In Galatians 2.20, he says, The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. He says, I've been crucified. All that was me, all that I did, all my good record sheet, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me. That's what he says. All that I am, all of my righteousness, all I want to contribute, he says, I consider it dead. It was crucified with Jesus. He says, if it wasn't, then I would nullify the grace of God. If I want to play my part, I'd nullify the grace of God. But he says in the very next verse in Galatians 2, 21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then listen, then Christ died for no purpose. If man's righteousness or anything that man could have done contributes to our salvation, then Christ died for no purpose. And the grace of God is nullified. It's void. It's thrown out. As Paul says, no, that's not the way we live. We, we, we die to self. And we don't try to pull up this, well, I did this thing. No, we throw it out. We say, I had to die. 
with Christ in order for him to raise me to life. And if you're dead, how useful are you? You can't contribute anything to anyone. So Christ then has to bring life to you, not yourself. If you take a 10-gallon jug of clean, pure drinking water, a 10-gallon jug of clean, pure drinking water, and you add one drop of infected or contaminated blood, would you drink the water? But it's 10 gallons, and it's just one drop. Of course you wouldn't. The whole thing's contaminated now. By one little drop. Same thing with grace. If you got grace that is like an ocean, and you try to add one drop of works, and you say, but just, I want it, and it's no longer grace, and it's contaminated, it's nullified. That's how it goes. You can't add works to grace. Then it's no longer grace anymore. It's not a gift anymore. Then God owes you something, even if it's just slight. He ought to pay attention to you because you did something. No, grace no longer becomes grace, just like the drinking water is no longer safe by a single drop. How does this happen? How are we, are we ever guilty of making grace no longer grace? You may admit and you may confess a Christian doctrine that no, I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and I learn through scripture alone. You may have that Protestant heart in you, and, and amen to that. And you may say, it's Jesus, Jesus alone. That's how he saves me. But are we ever guilty of distorting grace? Are we ever guilty of contaminating grace in some sense? Well, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you may, like the Galatian church, have needed a rebuke. The Galatian church had this rebuke that shows that they had come to believe a warped view of their grace and a warped view of the gospel. Paul rebukes them strongly in Galatians 3 and says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That's a way that grace is distorted and contaminated. To believe that, yes, God has saved me. God has rescued me. It was nothing that I contributed, nothing that I brought to the table. God be praised he saved me. But now, I keep myself Christian. It's me. I contribute to that. And if I don't contribute, then I'm no longer a Christian and I'm no longer saved. God rebuked the Galatians and said they're fools for believing that. If you believe that the grace of God only brought you in and the grace of God does not sustain you, you've, you've warped the grace. You've warped the gospel. And you've contaminated it. It's no longer grace anymore. You don't actually think the grace of God sustains you. You don't think the grace of God is sufficient for you. But you've got to do something to keep yourself a Christian. That's one way that we often will warp uh, grace. We need a rebuke as the Galatians do. Or, or perhaps you're at a different part in your relationship to God and you think, well, he will only love you initially or he will only continue to love you if you do certain things for him. And you can gauge this by going, God will love me more if I spend more time reading the Bible. God will love me more 
You may never say those words, but you might in your actions prove it. God will love me more if I go to church more often. God will love me more if I serve more. God will love me more if I do this, this, or this. What is your motivation for doing? Is it so that God will love you initially or God will continue to love you? It's hard because we are, we're wired this way, right? You do it with your parents. Well, you, want their, you seek their approval, and so you're going to do these things. And the reality is they don't love you any more or less, but that's the way we perceive it, right? We perceive that our, our parents love the goody-two-shoe kids, and they don't love as much the, the rebel kids. And so we want to be those good kids, and we want to do the good things so that we achieve the love from our parents. The love is not on levels. It's the same. Love multiplies in children. It doesn't add and subtract. But unfortunately, we take that and we approach God that way. Well, if I just do these things for God, then he's going to... We don't try to do this. We don't try to compare ourselves with other Christians. But he ought to love me more than that person. I mean, come on. They go to church at Easter. He ought to love me more than them. Does he? Isn't that a warped view of grace? Like, Why do you think you deserve God's love more than that person? So we warp God's grace in that way sometimes by thinking we deserve his love a little more when we do certain things. That's making grace no longer grace. Or just the opposite. You think that God will love you less or perhaps not at all or that God never will love you because of a certain sin. That's also a warped view of grace. That if you've sinned, you think God does not love me. There's no way he could love me right now. That's making grace no longer grace. Because then you think his love for you, his favor and his kindness towards you, his compassion towards you is based upon you. It's not. And and so that's a way that we often warp grace. But you know what? That's a common fear. That that God's going to love me less because I've done this thing. And You know how I know it's a common fear? Is because you talk to people about their prayerlessness. And you ought to wonder why we don't approach God as often as we should. And oftentimes, when it gets to the heart of it and the root of it, people's got sin in their lives, and they think God won't love them, and God won't accept them, and they can't approach God. So that's warping the idea of grace. Because you think it's contingent upon you. The grace of God is not based on your sinfulness and righteousness, remember? Just as it wasn't to get you into a relationship with God, it's not to keep you in a relationship with God. It's dependent on grace. Undeserved, unmerited favor with God because of Jesus. That's grace. Sometimes we warp grace when we require certain actions of people. Stop these certain things. Start these certain things. Then, then God will save you. Then God will love you. Then you'll be a Christian. Really? Doesn't the Bible just say, confess Christ? Trust Christ? Throw yourself on Christ? The Bible doesn't say, stop. It does say repent. But it doesn't say, right now, you stop all this, and then you get to come to Jesus. And then he will save you. No, no, no. Romans 5 tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were in the midst of our disgusting estate, God rescued us. So we warp grace sometimes by saying, well, you must stop these ten things, then you can come to church. You must 
start these ten things, then you're good enough to be a Christian. Um, right? And we'll often do that. That, that. that must come before salvation, but it's not true. It, it comes after. Change and action indeed will come. But it's as a, a fruit of God's grace. Not the means or the way in which we attain or acquire God's saving and sustaining grace. Because if it is the way that we got God's grace and kept God's grace by doing certain things, by starting certain things or stopping certain things, then it would no longer be grace. Uh, You see, this is true. And you see it in the example that Paul gave of the people in Elijah's day, the 7,000. God, by his grace, had elected. He had saved this group. And the evidence was, the fruit of that that followed was that they did not bow the knee to Baal. The fact that they didn't bow the knee to Baal was not why God chose them, and it was not why God saved them. It was not why they were called a remnant. God had rescued them, and he had saved them. He said, I kept for myself 7,000 people. Therefore, the fruit is, you can see it, they've not bowed to Baal. Right? Let's never get that backwards, because then grace will no longer be grace. If you think, because they didn't bow... Therefore, God saw them, said, they're pretty faithful people. Let's get them on our team. That's not what happened. It was the other way. God saved them. God rescued them. Therefore, there was fruit. And they did not bow to Baal. In the same way that we ought not require things of people before we say, God will rescue you. God will rescue you. God, the fruit will come when God has been gracious to certain people. Let's not try to require people to be saved by starting and stopping certain things. Let's never present the gospel that way, because that's no longer grace. But if God has been gracious to them, the fruit will come. Pray with them, be with them, go by their side. God's work will be evident in them. Believe that, or else grace is no longer grace. You see how easy it is to even slightly contaminate grace? But as we know from the example of the water, there's no such thing as a slight contamination. Grace that is contaminated is no longer grace. So we eliminate any works in the thought of becoming or staying God's people. Works must not be considered. Here in our verse, verse 6, if it is by grace, it's no longer by works. Those two are pitted against each other. And it's interesting because for a very long time as I read this passage, I always always get caught up on the phrase, it is no longer. I used to think, was it at one point by works? Is that what that verse actually means? Until you begin to discover two verses prior when God gives an Old Testament example of it not being the case. It was not by works. And he gives an example in Romans chapter 4 and in Romans chapter 9 and in Romans chapter 10 that it was never on the basis of works. So he's using that as a contrast. Grace versus works. That's the interesting thing is, so do we eliminate works? Yes, if we think they will save us. And we see in this passage that works are contrary to grace. So then what is our relationship to works? Can we just be exempt from good works then? Well, no. We know that the works are actually the evidence that we belong to God. Those 7,000 who walked by and did not bow the knee to Baal, that was a work in a sense. That was a fruit, but... That was the evidence that they belonged to God. It wasn't the way that they belonged to God. 
And so I love in Romans chapter 3, verse 27 and 28, it says, what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By, by the work, law of works? No, it says by the law of faith. For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So no one's justified by faith apart from works. That's interesting. And we know if you read James chapter 2, that James points to Abraham. And he says, look at his faith was completed by his works. What does that mean? That it, that it wasn't full? That he really didn't belong to Jesus until he worked? No, it just meant that it was evidence. The works were the evidence that God had done something in him. If God has taken you, we'll call this old you, and crucified you. And if God has made you a new life, that's going to look different. You're not, he's not just going to resurrect you as the same person. There's going to be some dramatic changes, first of all, in your heart and your desires. You're going to want to please God. That might not come in every area of your life right away, but it's going to. There's going to be progression. There's going to be growth. There's going to be holiness. If God has made you new, there's going to be evidence. And so there's, he points, James points to Abraham and says, his faith was completed. It was shown. It was evidenced by his works. Ephesians chapter 2, great chapter on salvation by grace. This is for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, but it is the gift of God. A gift. So therefore no work included. It's not the result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. It says, created, listen to this, we are created in Christ Jesus, so recreated, we're made new in Jesus, we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. We were created for good works. We were fitted for them, our new nature is now made for them. But good works are not what saved us, they are what shows We are saved. God has ordained the path for them. And God has used good works as the means by which he gets glory. Matthew 5, 17, a well-known verse. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's what we want in the end, isn't it? That's why we often really go after good works. And we really want to do good works. So that God gets the glory. That's, that's the goal. But let us never warp works into our salvation, even our beginning of our salvation, how God saved us, or how he continues to sustain us. How God keeps us is not based on works, or our grace would no longer be grace. What grace teaches us this morning is that it is undeserved, as it always has been, as it always will be. So it humbles us. There is nothing we contributed. All we contributed was the sin. Was the stain. Was the disdain to God. That's all we contributed. But yet, God in his mercy and in his grace has come to us and he's rescued us. Not because we found his house and knocked on the door. Not because we swam to his lifeboat. No, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And God made us alive through Christ. By grace, you've been saved. That humbles us. Humbles us. 
And it helps us to magnify God from start to finish. We sang it and Come Thou Fount. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. He did it. So if you realize that you're at odds with God and sin, don't contaminate the love and the grace of God by, by waiting to admit that you've got to do some things first. We admit our need of rescue. And God does it. God does it. God is faithful and God is gracious. Oh, that we would, in realizing the beauty of His grace, the beauty of His love in, in who we were and how we've offended Him, but yet He has so come to us that we would humble ourselves. Humble ourselves and continually admit our need of Him every day. Not just to, to save us originally, but to sustain us and to bring us home. And what's beautiful about His grace is it's a gracious promise that He has called you. End of Romans chapter 8 tells this, right? So He, the one whom He has called, He is justified. The one who is justified, He has glorified. And so God has done it. So we, we humble ourselves and we magnify God. That's what we do when we come face to face with grace that is uncontaminated. And we pray, oh God, forgive me if I contaminate your grace. Show me, expose me how I contaminate your grace, even in my own heart and with other people, how I talk about grace in a way which is not true. God, help me. And that's part of our humility. We come to God day in and day out and thank Him. Thank Him for His grace. Let's do that now. Oh God, in your justice, in your holiness, in your perfection, all of our sin should be judged. It should be judged in us. And by us, we should be penalized. We've not only offended you, we have defamed your character. We have robbed you of the glory that you are due. You've created us for your glory, and we've walked another way. And so, God, owing that is judgment. But yet... You are so kind. You are so gracious to, to save us. That the Christ would come in the flesh, live the life we could not live, die the death under your wrath that we should have died, and then rose again. And with him we are also raised in Christ. And we are so thankful for that gospel. We're so thankful for that grace. So God, help us expose where we have a misunderstanding of grace or where we warp grace or where we contaminate grace, God. Because then it's no longer grace and it should not hold that name. God, let us just bask in your pure grace that it seems unfair. It doesn't seem to make sense in this world. And it doesn't. God, it is supernatural and it is something that only you could have done. And so we thank you for it and we are humbled by it. And we pray that you would Use even that, that humility in our lives for your glory, that we may serve you, not to earn you, but because you have come to us. And God, we want to glorify you with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.